Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Uh, Judge has been amazing since July 16th. July 16th, he's hitting 389 with 28 home runs and 61 runs batted in. And here's the 3-1. Drove deep to left field. We're going to get there it goes. Deep left. It is high. It is far. It is gone. Number 60. Slide over, babe. You've got some company. He's tied the babe. Aaron James Judge. George Herman Babe Ruth his 60 home, home run of the year. Wow. All right. There comes the judge. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com. Joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, September 22nd. We absolutely have to talk about Aaron Judge. I'm sorry. It's just like a thing you have to do right now because every night something interesting happens. So yes, we're going to talk a little bit about Aaron Judge, who has 60 home runs, which is the coolest thing. Obviously, we'll get into our three batter minimum. First, we're going to talk about how Cleveland has basically ended the American League Central so much for what we thought would be an interesting divisional race. That one's over. Uh, We're going to talk about the Astros pitching and the really incredible stat that they have going on. And finally, the Phillies just can't do anything normally. They have had a losing record for like six weeks, but they're still in the playoff hunt and had a really interesting game last night. And of course, Matt and I will each talk about a guy you should know a little bit more about. Matt, I don't know if you've heard, Aaron Judge has 60 home runs. That that hasn't happened in a while. People are getting all excited about this. And I, I don't think I've ever said this before, nor will I ever. He's quietly trying to get a triple crown. <laughs> Like, like, like right now at this moment, he's tied with with uh, Xander Bogarts with a three seventeen batting average. But if you go out to like five decimals, judges ahead, the Red Sox and Yankees actually play this weekend, so maybe that's an interesting subtext. Um, is it is it going to be secondary if he wins a triple crown to the fact that he's going to have sixty six homers? I don't think so because I think what's going to happen is that I think that once he gets to 62, which is the American league record and what people are kind of excited about right now, then the focus will become the triple crown and that can kind of go down to the final day. And the crazy part about the triple crown thing is that like, even a week ago, our colleague Andrew Simon did a piece of like, at that point he was like eight or 10 points behind a Luis rise with a couple other folks in front of him, Jose Abreu, Xander Bogarts and Andrew did the piece of like, Hey, how can he catch a rise? And it was sort of like, it's, you know, it's kind of like making up 10 points on a guy like Arise in such a short period of time is tough, but like, here's how he can do it. And then, of course, Aaron Judge proceeded to go like 
10 for 15, while Luis Arise had one of his only over five games of the season, and now he's already leading in batting average. So I think once he gets to 62, the um, the attention will kind of uh, shift a little bit. And I'm going to double down, Mike. It's not just a triple crown. Aaron Judge is going for the octuple crown. What? Which has not been done <laughs> since Ted Williams in 1947, according to our colleague Sarah Langs. He is leading the American League in home runs, runs, RBIs, batting average, OPS, walks, extra base hits, and total bases. Uh, I guess there's there's actually more stuff. Wins above like replacement, F4. yeah. But like no one was talking about Fangraphs War when Ted Williams was playing, so I'm not sure we can hold him to that. State. I think it's actually 12 categories. The, the, I think and 12 is like do do a decal or something like that. But we'll go with octuple because that's the highest one that people know and can conceptualize. Um, so I think once once he gets to 62, which could happen as soon as like you know tonight or tomorrow by the time anyone listens to this. But uh, for now. Home, that'll become the focus, but for now, it's the home runs. Did you realize he's having one of the best single months in the history of baseball, too? Like, obviously, he's been great all season. So far in September, he has an OPS of, and I've said this before, I hate four-digit OPSs because I never know how to say them correctly. Um, 1590, 1.590. If you look at every month in the history of the American League and National League, and you obviously only look at months with at least 75 plate appearances, that's the fourth best month ever, with the first three being Barry Bonds, Barry Bonds, and Barry Bonds. I got a kick out of number four being Todd Helton. In pre-Humidor Coors Field, obviously OPS is not park-adjusted after that. Babe Ruth, Barry Bonds, Barry Bonds, Barry Bonds, Frank Thomas. Four more from Babe Ruth. I, I don't know, you know, there's still a week left in the month. Maybe that won't keep up. But that would be an incredible topper to an all-time great season if he had an all-time great month, too. <laughs> and he's also having one of the all-time great walk years. I think that's another, uh, you know, free agent year. You could argue um, that this is the best ever. Um, I think it probably depends on um, what, you know, what your exact criteria are. I think, you know, the other the other good examples are, you know, the aforementioned Barry Bonds in 1992 when he won the MVP before, with the Pirates before going on and signing with the Giants. A-Rod in 2000 when he was like 24 years old. So like having that kind of year when you're 24, 25 going into free agency is pretty special because he obviously that was the springboard to him getting a contract that was so far above and beyond anything anyone had ever signed up until that point. Um, Judge is having a better season than A-Rod. Judge's OPS plus is like 210 now. A-Rod was 163. Of course, Judge is 30 or 31. So even coming off this season, he's probably not going to like set a new standard for free agent contracts the way that A-Rod did. Is that fair to say? Oh, that's going to be a whole thing. Like, you have the the most incredible bet-on-yourself season in probably the history of organized sports, and it doesn't change the fact that he's going to be 31, which means after, let's say, a five-year deal, which he'll easily get, he's going to be 36. Like, you know, that's that's going to be such a huge difference from when A-Rod was, whatever you said, like 25. I want to ask you a question about that, actually, because I was talking about this with a friend and he made a good point, which is, you know, people, a lot of times people will throw out, oh, judge, players of his size don't age well. And then they throw out like these guys like, you know, Dave Kingman and Adam Dunn as proof of like, hey, these guys were toast. And, you know, they're the similar size. But my friend was like, you know, judge is so much more athletic than some of these guys. He's like, isn't like Dave Winfield a better comp for Aaron? I mean, Aaron Judge is playing center field, right? Like, so like, I do think there's something the idea that like, just comparing him to all these other just like hulking sluggers isn't necessarily good practice in terms of like okay how he how is how is Aaron Judge going to age? I'm curious for your take on that. 
compelling point, but I think I take the other side of that. And that is because it's not like Aaron Judge had a great record of durability leading up to this year. I think he'd had, what, one or two seasons of 500 plate appearances before this season. Dave Winfield, I'm probably underselling him a bit, but I think of like back injury Dave Winfield of the late 80s with the Yankees is what first comes to my mind. I agree with you. Like, it's not, there's not that many guys. It's not necessarily predictive. But it's not like Judge has never had seasons where he's missed a lot of time before. Like Either way, he's going to get a huge contract over some amount of years, but every team is going to want to try to limit that to five or six years. No one's giving him a 10, 11, 12-year deal, not not when he's already in his 30s. This will obviously be one of the interesting subplots of the uh, of the offseason. A brief mini rant on that, Ooh. though. One thing I keep hearing is I hear like announcers be like, Aaron Judge, he bet on himself and all the pressure he's, he's produced. And it's like... Listen, even if he had a terrible year, he was still getting like a hundred million dollars. Like the the pressure, like all the pressure, like even as it is now, as long as he's not like, you know, as long as he's like mindful at all, he's well set for his life in terms financially. And he was going to be very well set regardless of what happened this year. So this idea that there was this like intense pressure or like otherwise, you know, he was going to be like in the poorhouse. It leaves me a little, uh, I don't know. With, of his own Perturbed. choice, like he chose not to take the contract, which is exactly completely his right to do. Right, no, no problem with that at all. But it's for like, sure, for no sure, you know, pressure. totally. I think that like, um, and he's obviously going to end up getting more money. But even the the contract he was offered by the Yankees, I didn't think I didn't think based on like the marketplace for players and his age and everything was like, you know crazy especially since he wasn't a free agent they didn't have to bid against other teams i I don't want to leap like too far ahead into the winter because we'll talk about this a lot but if you look at his previous four seasons of ops uh, very consistent right starting in 2018 150 143 143 149 like consistently 40 to 50 percent above average which is extremely good this year it's 215 and it's going to be a really interesting conversation of well his agents will say this is the new normal that this is what he's going to be going forward and teams will be like is it though <laughs> like for one year? And, and again, I don't want to jump too far into that. Here's what I, I do want to ask you, because this is going to be a thing, I think, as we play out the rest of the season here. Have you noticed teams are throwing him more strikes? His his percentage of in-zone pitches in July was 44%. And in August, it's 44%. And in September, it's 49%. And if you look at some of the home runs, um, they are pipe shots, a couple of them. I looked this up this morning. If you look at middle, middle fastballs, right, he has seen the fifth most middle, middle fastballs in the sport in September. And I'm I'm not advocating like intentional walks. I do think there's a bit of a cowardice to that in some sense. But if I'm a pitcher and I don't want to walk him, I think I'm at least throwing him like down and in changeups, you know, like something he can't necessarily elevate. Middle, middle fastballs? What are we doing? I mean, I... I don't know. Like, I mean, the Yankees aren't really. I will actually. I'll, I'll two things. The Blue Jays actually kind of crept up on them a little bit more than I realized. And if they hadn't had that crazy comeback the other night with the Stanton Grand Slam, it could have been down to four point four and a half games with a three game series coming up. That said, the Yankees haven't really been challenged for a while. They've been playing a lot. I mean, they've been playing the Pirates the last couple of days. I don't know. Like, if you're one of these like young pitchers on the Pirates, it's like, what's the big deal? Like, I kind of want to challenge him. I want to see what's up. Like, this is Aaron Judge. Like. Sure, why not? Let's do it. You totally. know? I don't know. That's fun. I, challenging him doesn't have to be like throw your fastball in the middle. You know, challenging him can be I'm going to throw you breaking balls down and low, and some of them I think will be in your massive strike zone. You know, like there have been pitches where it's like you could not have made a better batting practice pitch against literally Aaron Judge, and like at a certain point, it's 
I, I obviously 100 million percent do not subscribe to this. I can't tell you how many jokes I've seen about the conspiracy theory that Adam Wainwright grooved one for Derek Jeter, right? Like coming back up again. And obviously that's not what's happening. But if you're a team that's not playing for much, and the Pirates very clearly are not playing for much, you want to go up there if you are, you know, Will Crow or Lee Ortiz or one of these guys. I want to be able to say, hey, I got Aaron Judge out. And I don't think throwing middle-middle fastballs is the way you do that. Mike, do you want to see some curveballs in the dirt, or do you want to see some dingers? Um, well, yes, the answer to that <laughs> is yes. The last thing I want to say about Judge is um, people people are shocked that a Yankee power hitter can play in Yankee Stadium and not have numbers that are like massively boosted by Yankee Stadium because you've got the short porch and you can get a couple of cheapy home runs there. I think I think half the sport thinks that Judge has like 58 home runs at home and two on the road. Do you know it's an even 30? He's got a better slugging percentage on the road. He's got a higher OPS on the road. And the reason for that is because, you know, you can get those cheapy homers, but when you're hitting balls like 600 feet, it doesn't matter that much. It matters if you're DJ LeMahieu, right? It matters if you're Isaiah Kinderfleff. It doesn't matter that much if you're Aaron Judge. It's not actually a great hitter's park. I think that shocks people. You know, it's it's a good hitter's park for that specific segment of like, Left, you know, we, like we saw like guys like Didi Gregorius and Curtis Granderson sort of have these career home run years by sort of adjusting their swing to basically like yank fly balls. But it's a terrible, it's a terrible park for right-handed power hitters, generally speaking, because it's so deep to left center and it's a terrible park for doubles and triples. So it's, it ends up being the, the extra like cheap home runs in, in right field sort of even out all the other ways. It's like not a very good, good park at all. It's. Yeah, it's the, the fact that it's 30-30 is pretty, is pretty cool. He's hit 54 balls this year that would have been out by stack as measures of at least 25 or more parks, right? Just based on the, the walls and the distances and everything. Of those 54 balls, only 52 were home runs. The two that he hit that were home runs almost everywhere that didn't actually leave the park, one was in the New Baltimore where we've joked about this before, he hit like the very top of the new wall, which would have been out by like 40 feet last year. And one was to dead center at Yankee Stadium in April. And Kike Hernandez jumped, and I can't say for sure he robbed a home run, maybe it hit the top of the wall or whatever. But that was a ball in Yankee Stadium that would have been out of 25 other parks and was not a home run there. So just remember that when you watch Aaron Judge, he would hit the ball out of, I don't know, Yellowstone Park? Are there more updated jokes than that for like what a park, a giant park should be? I guess that's all I got. <laughs> how, how about uh, Pelham Bay Park in the Bronx, which most people don't know is the largest park in New York City? Um, sometimes I think this podcast gets too New York centric and I, I think you maybe, I, I thought maybe you did it when you talked about growing up next to Vince Scully's old house. And, uh, I think you really, you topped yourself on that one. So what we'll do is we'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about flyover country. We'll talk about the American league central and how it's over on the ballpark dimensions podcast. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon. When a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Pitchrell and Matt Myers. 
And what I really thought was going to be like a really interesting division race, maybe even if we got lucky, a three-team division race down to the last day, it's over. Cleveland is now up by six over the White Sox. They're up by nine over Minnesota. And to their immense credit, they just did it head-to-head. They have taken six out of seven from the Twins over the last two weeks. The uh, They're playing the White Sox right now. The White Sox really needed a sweep. Well, Cleveland beat them in each of the first two games. It is over. Immensely disappointing for the Twins, who held first place for like four and a half months. Immensely disappointing for the White Sox, who were overwhelmingly the favorites and have had their season just crumble and burn. And now Cleveland's pretty much locked into the number three seed. So they will host at the moment Seattle, maybe the Rays, depending on how things go, which should be pretty interesting. And I think it's, we're going to talk about the things that Cleveland does and does not do. And here, before I get into numbers, Matt, I was thinking about this. Cleveland is extremely well known, the Guardians are, for making a ton of contact. Like their hitters don't strike out. Right now, they've got a 16% strikeout rate this month. It's tied for the lowest strikeout rate of any month of the last four seasons. They make a ton of contact. They're very proud about that. And yet they don't score a ton of runs. Like they're 18th in runs scored uh, for the season. They're 15th over the last month, much better than that, which I'll get to in a second recently. And what I kept coming back to is it's almost like politics or religion where it's like, I like this style and I don't care what the facts say. Because when you kind of get into it with Cleveland fans, you're like, well, they don't score that many runs. And you're like, no, they're great. They don't strike out. And while I'm very clearly on the anti-small ball side of things, I would easily shut my mouth if it led to a lot of runs, and it usually doesn't. And isn't that all that matters? Not how you get the runs, just that the runs are scored? Yes, but I I totally get why people are kind of like, and I've been watching a lot of the Guardians recently. I get why people like watching them. It actually, the team, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Royals further on in this segment about the AL Central, they kind of remind me of those Royals teams of like the two that, you know 2014 15 where they have a really good bullpen. They've got some speed guys. They've got some really good defense. They take extra bases. They put the ball in play. Like all these things that like, you know, is, you know, often considered, you know, smart baseball, good baseball uh, is what they do. And it's can be very fun to watch. Like I was watching them this week a lot in their series again, last weekend against the Twins and this weekend, this week against the White Sox, where they basically just like, consistent I, I don't want to say I'm not sure the right word where they basically were just so relentless in terms of putting the ball in play taking bases like I don't want to say forcing errors but the other teams were making errors and it was like oh, okay this is like it was an entertaining form of baseball and I, I I mean also at the end of games like Emmanuel Classe is one of my favorite players in baseball you you see a formula which a team would be like oh these guys are kind of annoying to play I don't want to play them but the flaws are real. Like the offense, you look at their offense yesterday, the top of their lineup is like actually like, okay, okay, you know, some decent players. But then you get to the bottom, the bottom three spots, you got Will Brennan, Austin Hedges, Miles Straw. And it's like you're going into a playoff series. It's like that's a third of your lineup. Will, and Will Brennan. Then that's kind of where you kind of lose a little lose a little enthusiasm for the for the Guardians. Will, wait, well, Will Brennan has played like one major league game. You might just be looking at like literally yesterday's lineup. But I, fine. But who, who? I mean, he was in, he was in the lineup yesterday. But fine. Look look who. I mean, I'm just using. But like who who would replace him otherwise? Like Owen Miller. You know, Will Benson, Tyler Free. Like it's not like. There's certainly like it's not like they it's, they have uh, it's not like they have peak Albert Bell sitting on the bench here. No, I I would say I I actually kind of like the top six or so in their lineup reasonably well. Like Jose Ramirez is totally that's what I'm legit saying. Legit superstar. It's the yeah, it's the bottom three. It's that Hedges, Straw, you know, 
whoever number nine is. I guess that's usually straw. But um, I do want to I want to argue with you a little bit about the 2015 Royals. That team finished seventh in runs scored and tenth in slugging. Like that that team actually had some pop. People like say, oh, it's pitching a defense. They could, the team could hit. And that's the thing. It's a deeper. It was a deeper team. You know, they were getting. You know, they, you have. You know, you compare like they were getting some pop from their catcher spot. They've got Sal Perez. Like they've got Lorenzo Cain. They're getting some pop from like places that other teams aren't getting. They had added. They added Ben Zobrist at the deadline. Like this was a team that was a little more well rounded, a little more deeper. I think there's similarities, but obviously, I mean, that team won the World Series. They won nine. They had the most wins in the regular season. I'm just saying, kind of stylistically. I'm going to say it's a, it's a it's a it's a fair point to make because like that that Royals team is probably better at certain things than they remember for. I'm going to say one uh, somewhat negative thing about the Guardians before I say a number of positive things. So hopefully I'll come out ahead at the end. They have a 698 OPS right now. If you go back, just in the American League, because obviously the National League had pitcher sitting for a number of years. Uh, if you go back to the beginning of divisional play, that 698 OPS would be the sixth weakest hitting team ever. And all of the other ones were from the 70s and 80s before them and in mostly like striker lockout years as well so you haven't had a team with the weakest weakest division weakest weakest yes. division winner to be clear that's what i said yes, yes. that's like oh, I thought you said weakest that's overall. what i thought i said anyway uh, now if obviously that's not adjusted for season so if you want to go ops plus it's merely the 25th weakest but either way it's not it's not that strong um but something i noticed was uh over the last two weeks over the last 14 days they have scored the second most runs in baseball and that's not really predictive. I think it's worth pointing out. They played the Twins eight times. And Matt, I think you're the Twins' fourth starter right now. You know, they played Kansas City, who just fired their general manager or president of baseball ops. They played the Angels, who have fired their manager. And the White Sox, who are, I don't know, halfway towards firing their manager. It's quite unclear. They haven't exactly played like the toughest competition over the last couple of weeks. But what they do, they do really well, aside from making contact, is kind of everything else. Like, they got a really good defense. They tied for third and outs above average and they run the bases really well they're fifth in fangraphs base running runs and over the last month they're pitching as the fourth best era and i think that the quiet part here and i think this is half luck but not entirely luck um they're super healthy if you look at days lost to the injured list they've had the fewest in baseball 687 all season long right now they only have two players on the injured list one of them is anthony ghost who is like a position player convert to pitching um the twins have 18 <laughs> so that's a big part of what's happened now there's a couple things happening here um like i said a little bit of it is is fortunate luck you can't always control when a pitcher blows out his elbow uh but they're they're young and young youth is correlated to health. And I think that's partially like very good player development, but it's also partially what we've been talking about for years is that they never actually go sign any veterans. <laughs> so it's not like a total coincidence, but you know, we've talked about this recently, the, the hot Yankee start and the lousy Yankee finish pretty well correlated to how healthy they were or were. So I think this is a huge part of what's going on for Cleveland this year. Totally. And that the, the youth is definitely has to be a factor. It's part of what makes them fun, right? It's part of, you know, they have speed and that's like, Speed also correlates with use and also correlates with good defense. Like these all these things all go together and clearly was part of their larger plan. You just wish they kind of had one more slugger, one more power bat. I think one of the big differences recently is that um, Amin Rosario has been kind of that guy recently. He's actually been really just like scorching the ball and has, has taken their offense up to a little a little bit to an, an, another notch, just having a power bat, especially from a middle infield. And he, he's always had that ability to hit the ball hard and hit the ball far, but it doesn't always manifest itself because he kind of swings at everything. But um, it's it'll be a fun team to watch in the postseason. It's also a team I could see playing in a first-round series and basically scoring three runs and being out in two, in two, in two days. So 
<laughs> we 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 shall see. But late late games, close games, they 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 can go toe to toe with everyone because they can scratch out runs and their bullpen is very good. Yes, even though nobody knows who is in their bullpen. Like Class A is very good. Trevor Steffen is very good. They, you know, Eli Morgan's pretty good. They've got so many interesting relievers. And I, I gotta say, I did not think on September twenty second we would ever do a segment where we touch on all five American League Central teams. And yet the news sort of forces us to, like, while we're here. Uh, hey, the Royals fired Dayton Moore. Hey, the Tigers just hired Scott Harris to run baseball things. And there's no way. There's no way that's the last thing that comes out of the Central. The White Sox are going to make some kind of move. The Twins are kind of collapsed really badly. I, I don't have high hopes for them in the near future. Like, there's going to be other moves coming in this division. Like, I'm I'm guaranteeing it. I would think so. Um, the Twins situation, I've, I mean, they're, they're in a weird spot because they're young guys— have not really popped. Their pitching is kind of a mess. They don't really have a, a wave of prospects coming. So it's like they, they're, they're in this spot where they're supposed to be good and competitive, but it's unclear what that roster is going to look like next year. And they're so reliant on Byron Buxton, who's great when he plays, but you can't really rely on him to play 140 games. And so I don't really know what's going to happen there. I mean, Cleveland is by far the most stable team. And you look at it, it's like, oh, they'll probably just win the division again next year the way things are right now. The White Sox... We talk about them every year. They have no depth. And in addition to no depth, a lot of the guys that were expected to be like stars have either been either eh, unhealthy or bad. And it's kind of like, okay, I don't even know where this is going either. So Guardians are in good shape and they could, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they're, they, they are going to win the division this year. I'm curious. I mean, the Royals, what do you think about the Royals basically just like promoting their GM to president of baseball operations. I would have thought they would have gone for maybe like a big change, change things up kind of thing, but they just let go of Dayton Moore and they promoted JJ Bacola, who he's worked with, who's worked under Moore for like 20 years. I get strong Rockies vibes here for a couple of reasons. Number one is um, they seem to treat their people really well, like loyalty. And that's, that's important. That matters. And I think the Rockies do that too. Um, The Rockies similarly, promote from within constantly when you kind of think maybe they should need a new voice. And then the third thing that stands out is you just heard a lot of talk about, well, we underperformed this year. And I was like, I don't know. Did, did you? Like, Baseball Prospectus had them as a 91 loss team. I had them as the last place team in the Central. And they, I said, this pitching is never going to work out. They can't pitch and they haven't pitched. And I'm not trying to like toot my own horn here, but there is a weakness in self-evaluation I think like if, if you thought this was the year for a big step forward, I just don't I don't know how you see that. And I wouldn't know J.J. Piccolo if he sat down next to me. So I can't really comment on what he's going to do. But if it's just going to be more of the same, then I, I kind of think that's a problem. Like since Dayton Moore took power in 2007, uh, the Royals are tied with Pittsburgh for the third most losses uh, since 2016. They've got the fourth most losses. Obviously, yes, they won a World Series and they went to two World Series and that all matters. But of the 16 seasons since he was in charge, three winning years, one 500 year, 12 losing seasons. And there was a really interesting article that came out in The Athletic a week or two ago, kind of detailing where they've fallen behind in the minors, especially on the pitching side. Like the, the bats have done pretty well. Like, you know, my man Vinny and Bobby Witt and Nick Prado and MJ Melendez. And there's a couple of interesting bats, but Really, other than Brady Singer, very few of the pitchers have panned out. And there was kind of a damning quote in there from a coach who was like, you know, if Jackson Coar or somebody like that was with Cleveland or the Dodgers, he'd be a good pitcher now. And it's like, man, how do you feel about that if you're a guy who got drafted by the Royals? <laughs> I think that's going to be the big thing with them. Because as you said, the position players are interesting. I think in some ways they're 
maybe most well positioned to sort of make a leap up in the next couple of years to challenge Cleveland because the position young position player core is really good. I'm interested to see if Piccolo makes a significant overhaul on the player development side with pitching because that's there's there's kind of nowhere to go but up. So it's possible that maybe even a couple of like changes on the, the player development side could lead to some big gains because you're going from like even if you went from like zero to two, you're getting a big gain and. Their their kind of young core and direction and sort of payroll situation is probably better than Detroit or Chicago or Minnesota. I mean, Chicago, I still won't count out because the the, the star level talent is still there, but there's such a drop off after the t- after the top like five or six guys in their roster um, that I do wonder how they can get through a 162 game season and win 90 plus games. Yeah. The owner, John Sherman had a really interesting quote yesterday and he's like, we, we need to be more data driven in our decisions. And I don't think you should take that to mean they're going to be the raise all of a sudden, like that's, they don't need to go that far, but when they, you know, they've been in that story, they said, we don't really have a pitch design guy, you know, pitch design, meaning like, how do you shape your curveball? How do you throw your slider like this? Which is like, that's entirely what the Dodgers and the Rays and the Yankees and, and the guardians do. And I think, you don't have to be necessarily ahead of everybody, but you need to close that gap between everybody, which I think is where they, they've kind of fallen behind on. Um, the Tigers also hired Scott Harris, uh, who was a big part of the Giants' success last year. Pretty much everything I've ever read about him, everybody speaks incredibly highly of him. Like, he's a very well-regarded guy, and I don't have any idea what to make of the Tigers because I thought they'd be decent this year. They were not. And I just don't know how much of it is is roster decisions and how much of it is guys you thought would be good weren't. Like Javier Baez was a huge disappointment this year. Uh, I know Eduardo Rodriguez had off-the-field issues, but even when he pitched, he wasn't that great. Spencer Torkelson has looked better lately, but man, did he get off to a bad start. I, I don't know what to make of this team, and half of those young pitchers are hurt right now. Harris has seemingly been in, in like a name mentioned for every open like GM or president of baseball operations job in recent years. So now that he sort of has the the P.O.B.O. title and is going to theoretically get, I mean, I guess he wouldn't have taken this job unless he felt like he was going to be really empowered. We we shall see uh, what all the hype was about, but they're, they're a team that has been willing to spend in the past and in the AL central, that can make a big difference because most of the teams in that division haven't really been known to spend a lot of money. And so there could be a real opportunity, but I still think that the, the infrastructure there in terms of the, the young talent is still probably a little behind a couple of these other teams, but there, again, there's not a juggernaut here, so it's not it's not that hard within like two years to suddenly like make a big jump. Right. Um, let's talk about the best team in the American League. Let's talk about the Houston Astros, who um, I'm gonna I am gonna pat ourselves on our backs here because you and I were both on the record when the season started saying, "Boy, I think the Astros are being undersold. Too many people are focusing on the guys they've lost, like Correa and Springer, and I think they're going to be really good. And guess what? They're really good again. They're always really good." And the pitching is really interesting. Um, they don't have the lowest ERA because it's the Dodgers, but they have the lowest, lowest fielding independent pitching, 331, because they strike out more than the Dodgers. They allow fewer home runs than the Dodgers. Having the lowest home runs per nine and the third highest strikeout percentage is a pretty neat trick to pull. It's funny because Justin Verlander is the big name, and he's probably the Cy Young frontrunner, but the most interesting guy right now is Framber Valdez, who has 25 straight quality starts. That's at least six inches, six innings and three or fewer runs. Uh, that's an MLB record. And Matt, you, I guess, uh, through Twitter, dug up a really interesting stat about how all of their pitchers are good. Is that what you had? I, I feel like, I, I think I shout out Jeremy Frank yeah. on Twi- on this show like every other week because he always has some gems on Twitter. And uh, what is he? Is he MLB random stats? I can't yes. remember. I think I think that's it. And he, 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 he tweeted this the other day. 
every player who has pitched for the Astros this year, besides Ronel Blanco, six and a third innings, and Pedro Baez, two and a third innings. So basically, two guys who basically haven't pitched. So basically, every pitcher who has pitched for the Astros this year has an ERA under four. That means 99.3% of their innings have come from sub-four ERA pitchers. The last team to finish with a higher percentage was the 1979 Orioles. And that was obviously, that's A, you know, uh, 42 years ago, 43 years ago, and B, a totally different run environment. Like, and C, they have way more pitchers. Like, the game is so different now. <laughs> like, the 79 Orioles could just, like, roll the ball out to, I guess, I don't know, I guess Jim Palmer is still there and, D- and Dennis Daly. And Dennis like, Martinez, <laughs> I believe, was uh, the ace of that staff. Hey, give us 250 innings. Go. Like, they like, probably had, like, four guys throw 250 innings. The Astros, as you note in, in, our, in our notes here, have 22 different pitchers this year. The 79, As- 79 Orioles had 12 different pitchers, but only 10 who threw more than three innings. So it's, it's kind of apples and oranges and just goes to show how deep their pitching is, how good their pitching is. And it's also pretty interesting in the context of why people hate the Astros is because of this whole sign stealing thing. And they deserve, hey, if you want to like hate the Astros because of that, I get it for fandom. Like that's that's kind of what fandom is about. You find your heroes, you find your villains. You, it's, you know, there's that, that whole pro wrestling aspect of it. Cool, I get it. But the fact that they basically have never stopped being good since 2017 and now are being led by nothing to do with any sort of <laughs> sign stealing by by batters, but just like insanely dominant and deep pitching. I was reading, um, so Brian McTaggart is the Astros beat writer for MLB.com. And he was he was talking about the potential playoff rotation. And he's like, well, Justin Verlander is your one, obviously, for Amber Valdez, number two. Uh, and Lance McCullers, who you know was hurt for most of the year, but he's back healthy and obviously has extensive playoff experience uh, as your three. He says, those are the locks, right? Verlander, Valdez, and McCullers. And then you have to think about who the fourth starter is going to be. And Brian McTaggart believes it will be Jose Urquidy, who has a lot of postseason experience and has been a good pitcher for some time. And he might not be wrong, and that's totally fine. But then what made me laugh is, well, that leaves out Luis Garcia, who's been very good. Christian Javier, who has a 277 ERA in 136 innings. And uh, Ricky Hunter Brown, who is just electric. Like, I don't know, he's going to pitch out of the bullpen and he's going to be the guy that people come away from this postseason going, wait, who? Hunter Brown. That's your guy. And I'm thinking, Christian Javier has been so good. Like, he's got about 11 strikeouts per nine, an ERA under three, and they won't be able to find room for him in the playoff rotation. That's rich people problems right there. I was like, oh, we'll have to use him as a bullpen weapon. Oh, what shall we do? And the answer, we've seen, I mean, they're in the playoffs every year, and they do this basically, with the exception of Verlander, we've seen all these guys sort of like bounce around in different roles, um, and they seem to thrive whatever, whatever situation they're in. I guess we should briefly talk about, is Justin Verlander going to win the Cy? Did we just publish our uh, Cy Young poll where Verlander got, what, like 25 out of 30 first place votes? Somewhere thereabouts? How much of that is because, A, he's Justin Verlander, future Hall of Famer, coming off of uh, two lost seasons due to injury at 39, B, because he's the only one with an ERA under two, or C, because he's actually just the best pitcher? A little bit of all those, I think. Um, it's a weird, I mean, it's, it's, it's in some ways it's the most interesting um, awards vote this year, I think, the AL Cy Young, although based on our, our, our straw poll, it seems like Verlander is going to run away with it. Probably for the, probably the ERA is the, is, is the reason. But there's not like an obvious guy. I mean, Farmer Valdez might, might be making the strongest case. He now, I think, now leads the American League in innings and has had, you know, 25 straight quality starts. And um, I was, you know, that's he's 30 mornings in Verlander, and I always put a high high premium on uh, 
innings pitched. And it's funny because Verlander a few years ago basically lost, quote unquote, finished second to Blake Snell when Blake Snell was like 35 innings behind him. And it was kind of, you know, a, a controversy at the time. And he might benefit from the opposite this year to kind of end up winning the end up winning the Cy Young Award. So based on our poll, unless he gets rocked in any of his last couple starts, he's probably going to run away with this thing. I have two Cy Young thoughts I briefly want to get out there. The first is that I know Shohei Otani won't win. He probably won't finish second or third, but he's going to finish second in the MVP and like fourth in the Cy Young voting. And I know I know pitchers have done that. Pitchers have won the MVP award, but this is not what's happening here. And I just I don't want us to lose sight of how amazing that is. The second thing is if you were to go to Fangraphs right now and you were to sort all American League pitchers by wins above replacement, number one is not Verlander or Otani or Shane McClanahan, or Dylan Cease, or Shane Bieber, or Framber Valdez, or Alec Manoa, it is Kevin Gossman. And I think that would surprise people. He's obviously had a very good year. He has a 3.32 ERA, which is fine, but he has the best fielding independent pitching in the majors, in the American League anyway, at 2.37, because, and this is true, this is an amazing stat that I looked up before. He has, if you look at the history of baseball, American League and National League, of every pitcher who's ever had a season of 150 innings pitched, the highest batting average on balls in play allowed ever. <laughs> 364. It's not all bad luck. Like, obviously, he's giving up the quality of contact that he is. But the Jays' defense is terrible behind him and only him. Yeah, they are minus nine and outs above average behind him. And James Smythe, who, as a researcher at Yes, had some really interesting notes. He said, so Gosman's 364 bat up against is the highest in the history of baseball, but that's while the major league BABIP of 290 is the lowest since 1992. And if you look at what the Blue Jays are doing with every other pitcher, they're allowing a lower than average BABIP with everybody except for him. Part of it is because I think they shifted like lunatics earlier in the year and he yelled at them and they've stopped doing this so much. But James ran the numbers. If you took his 364 BABIP and you just gave him an average 290, that's 33 fewer hits allowed. That's a big part of a run of ERA. Does that get him in the conversation? Well, let me ask you a question, because I'm curious about this. You might be able to explain it better. You know, he obviously has a huge gap between his ERA, Gossman, and his, his fielding independent pitching. His ERA is 3.32. His FIP is 2.37. So it's like, you know, it's half, almost a full run. But if you look at expected ERA, the StatCast metric that is factoring in batted ball quality, his expected ERA is basically the same as his ERA. It's 3.38. So why that suggests maybe he hasn't been unlucky. So what what explains that that disparity? Well, I think I think both things can be true. The expected ERA does bring in the quality of contact, while FIP doesn't. It doesn't worry about that so much. Um, but I think both things can be true. He's probably giving up. I don't have it in front of me. Not the greatest contact, and then also the Blue Jays are just being terrible at helping him out with that. I mean, that's that's probably what's going to end up happening if you look at it. I still think he should get. He's not. He's He's not going to win. I just think maybe we're overlooking him based on how insanely good he's been. Is that fair? Can we say that? I think it's fair. I think it'd be interesting if he had like, you know, a huge innings gap on Verlander or the field, but he's only like a few innings ahead of, ahead of, uh, ahead of Verlander. And that's the, and I think that's what's going to benefit Verlander is there's no one who's like running, has some Sandy Alcantara-esque lead on innings. Totally. It's, it's mostly when I see a guy with the highest anything in the history of anything and also that his teammates are not getting the same negative effects that he is, that kind of stands out to me as, wow. All right, our last thing, we got to talk about the Phillies. The Phillies were like this close to losing it all. Um, I, I hate to put too much emphasis on like a single game. Here's where the Phillies are right now. They hold the third wild card spot. They're two and a half games up on the Brewers, but entering Wednesday night, they were 18 and 19 in their last 37 games. 
<laughs> they had been swept by the Braves. They lost 18-11 to to Toronto. They entered last night's game on a streak of five losses in a row, and then they were down 3 nothing in the eighth inning. And you're like, oh, this is, this is doom and gloom. This is how the Phillies muck this up. And then they came back. They tied it. They won an extra innings. Matt Veerling had five hits, including the walk-off. And he's a guy who actually hits the ball really hard. I think last September, he might have been... He came up and had a game where he had like four balls hit over 105 or whatever. It was like very rare for anybody to do that. And he did it. His hits in the seventh inning and tenth inning. Matt, do you know how many feet combined those two hits went in the seventh inning and the walk-off? The walk-off was like a... It went like straight off the plate almost. It like bounced yep. like straight down and then like bounced high up. and then Sure the did. Combined. What's the com- What? Six six feet. <laughs> six. <laughs> he had five hits. Only one of them was a hard hit ball and only by four tenths of a point. This isn't about Matt Verling. It's just for a team that, I don't know, maybe more than any other team finds a way to lose. This is the this is the opposite of that. And considering the streak they were on, um, remember their season, right? They got off to a terrible start. They fired their manager. They played very well under the new manager. And that, it felt like it was going back the other way. And I guess this is a good reminder that momentum is not a real thing. Momentum is fake. Don't let anybody tell and, you otherwise. I mean, for anyone who was watching that game last night, in the bottom of the 10th, they were, it was like bases loaded and one out, and Tasco Hernandez hit a ball absolutely on the nose right into a line drive double play, right at Jane Segura. So maybe they, credit to the, they had their, their infield aligned perfectly because it was like 105 miles off the bat, probably had a hit probability of like 90, you know, it was like a knee high line drive right at Segura, double play. And then they win in the, the bottom of the inning on the, the Veerling, the Veerling uh, chopper. They're a team that I think going into the year, going like as the season's progressed, it's like, Ooh, they could be dangerous in a playoff series. Cause they've got Nola and Wheeler. Like they, that one, two is as good as anyone. Of course, Wheeler came back last night. He threw four innings. Presumably he'll be ramped up if they make it to the wild card. But I'm not sure you can take it for granted. They are going to beat the Brewers. Yes, they're three games up now, or two and a half, three in the loss column. But they're host, the Phillies are hosting the Braves for four this weekend. The Brewers are going to Cincinnati for four. So it's not hard to see like three and one and three and one. And suddenly it's like, huh, now we're, you know, it, we're basically even. The, uh, the Phillies have a weird 10-game road trip to end the year. Uh, they go through the Cubs, who aren't very good. They go through the Nationals, who aren't very good. And then Houston. <laughs> That's how their season ends. They have to go to Houston might not have anything to play for at that point. So maybe it doesn't matter. Uh, but I was thinking kind of along the same lines as you were with the Phillies in terms of how some teams are built to be great over a, a long period of time, like the Dodgers. You know, no one's beating them over 162. It's not happening. But could you beat them in a three game series? Like, sure, stuff happens. The Phillies, I don't trust them at all over 162. But if you get Wheeler and Nola lined up and, you know, Harper and Schwarber are hitting the ball, like, could, could they win over three games? Sure. Here's the thing, though. Uh, a big part of their rebound after Girardi got fired is the defense started playing better. Well, the defense is bad again. In August, they had the second, wor- third worst defense. And in September, they have the second worst defense. And Zach Wheeler missed a month with forearm tendonitis. Now, he came back yesterday, actually pitched pretty well. But I- I'm thinking they can't come down to the last game with Milwaukee. Right, they have to wrap it up at least three days in advance because the only way this works for them is if it's lined up that Wheeler and Nola pitch games one and two of a best of three. You do not want to go into that with well, actually, it's Kyle Gibson and Bailey Falter. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a, there's a, they have to wrap this up before they get to that Houston series, which means you have to not get killed by the Braves and you have to 
pound on the Cubs and the Nationals, which I guess isn't out of the realm of possibility. Could happen. Needs to happen. Yeah, I, I don't really, as you said, I don't really trust them. Their bullpen, while they've solidified it when they got Dave Robertson, it still always feels a little bit dicey. But they they have the high end talent to be to be like kind of scary against against any team. It's been a little weird for them recently because like Real Muto Real Muto has been amazing, but Bryce Harper since he came back has been like pretty uninspiring. But I think Real Muto has been so good that it's kind of been able to to mask some of Harper's struggles. Yeah, Real Muto has been fantastic. He's a career best one thirty two OPS plus. He is basically what John Carlos Stanton is to exit velocity. He is to pop time. All right because he has been number one or two in every single year. And I'm going to give our, our producer Alex credit for this. I didn't know only one catcher had ever gone 2020 home runs and stolen bases before. It was Padre Rodriguez in 1999. Uh, Romito is only two stolen bases away from doing that this year, which would be amazingly cool if he could do it. And it's like earlier this year, I was kind of down on Romito. The numbers seemed bad. And now it looks like he's, he's going to be amazing. I'm going to give you a sneak preview. There's, one of the fun metrics we want to roll out this winter is how catchers uh, do better than the positions that they are put into, the situations they're put into in terms of stolen bases by pitchers giving up big leads or lousy leads. Romuto is almost breaking the scale. Like, that's how far ahead of expected he is. It's not even that he's accurate. It's not even that he's got the best throwing arm. It's just that he's so fast. He is so quick. You cannot steal on him. All right, we're going to take a quick break on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and we will be right back with two guys we should talk about more. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And we're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike and Matt. We always like to end our show by talking about a couple of guys you should know a little bit more about. And my guy, I almost feel like we should have talked about him like two weeks ago, but it's still happening. 30-year-old Washington Nationals rookie Joey Manessas. He is hitting in his first 43 games. He's got 10 home runs. He's hitting 328, 364, 563. He's got a weighted runs created plus of 154. And there's there's a lot of irony in this to me. We didn't get to, we wanted to talk about that Juan Soto is really struggling with the Padres. Well, when Joey Manessas got called up, it wasn't just like as an injury replacement. It was literally to take Juan Soto's roster spot. You can go back and say, on August 2nd, here's the tweet. Okay, we've traded away Josh Bell and Juan Soto, and we called up a couple of guys to take their roster spots. And one of them is this 30-year-old rookie you've never heard of and will probably never think about again. And then what happened? Juan Soto hasn't been very good. Like They have improved by swapping out literally Juan Soto for 30-year-old rookie Joey Manessas. And I, like, I'm not here telling you he is the next future superstar. Like, the, the, if I have ever seen like a hot six weeks at the best time of your life, this is it. But even so, it's super cool. I looked up um, over the last 100 years the best rookie seasons by anyone who's 30 or older. 
And recently, it's mostly, you know, a Cuban guy like Yuli Gurriel, who didn't come over until his early 30s. Uh, but what I I went back to, like, the beginning of baseball history, and I, I want to say these names because they are so fun. Um, the first couple names aren't that interesting from the 1930s, right? George Washington, George Fisher, Johnny Schulte, whatever. Buzz Arlett of the 1931 Phillies, Joey Manessis is next. And then Sox Seabolt of the 1901 <laughs> Philadelphia A's. These are the best age 30 rookie seasons socks Seabold. i'm so glad i got to say that as you might expect for a 30 year old rookie he's got a bit of a track record he was born in mexico in 1992 and signed with the braves in 2011 he spent seven whole years in atlanta's system through 2017 without ever rising past double a as a minor league free agent he signed with the phillies in 2018 got to triple a won the international league mvp which I can't say I was paying that close attention to it at the time, but seems impressive. Uh, the next year, he went to Japan, and this is my favorite thing. When I was a kid growing up, there was a cartoon, it's a very popular Japanese cartoon called Dragon Ball Z. One of the characters is named Goku, and he has said he was such a big fan of that, that's why he wanted to go play in Japan, which I love, except he only played there for two months and got suspended for a year because of a PED test. Womp womp. Uh, came back, signed with the Red Sox for 2020. Obviously didn't play in the minors, but he did play in the Olympics, which were played uh, early last year. And then last year, he played in double A, triple A for the Red Sox, signed a minor league deal with the Nationals, spent his whole year with the Nationals until he came up and has a 154 weighted runs created plus. I can't say I know what the future holds for him. There's obviously opportunity on this Nationals team, but it's a really cool story to be a 30-year-old rookie outplaying Juan Soto, literally Juan Soto. So here's to you, Joey Manessis. I also love that on this list of best 30 seasons by players, 30 years old and up is also Monty Irvin, like one of the all-time great players who didn't debut until he was in his 30s because he was playing in the Negro Leagues and baseball was segregated. He's right below He's right below Sox. He pulled on this list. <laughs> um, my guy for this week is none other. Well, actually, I'll start with a trivia question. Do you know who is second in baseball in weighted runs created plus since the All-Star break? I mean, of, of course I do. We, we share a podcast document, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that question a different way. Um, about a week ago, you, you said this earlier, Andrew Simon was writing about the triple crown possibilities and I helped him out with the graphic. And it was like Aaron Judge, yeah, Xander Bogarts, yeah, Luisa Rice. And the fourth guy, your guy, when he sent it to me, I was like, no, that that can't be. What? <laughs> yes, since the All-Star break, Aaron Judge has a 272 weighted runs created plus, for one, where 100 is average. And Nathaniel Lowe of the Rangers is second at 193. He's hitting 362, 419, 607 in that span. For the year, he's at 306, 360, 500. And it's been one of the, like the surprising stories of the season. One thing that stands out to be stands out to me about Nathaniel Lowe is his approach. Um, two things: he's second only to Freddie Freeman um, in opposite field hits by left-hand hitters this season, um, which I think is an interesting thing, especially in this in this shift shift air shift happy era. Although that's going to change next year, but he should be pretty well equipped to deal with it because he never had to worry about the shift to begin with. He sprays the ball everywhere, and I got to say, poor man's Freddie Freeman is there. There are worse. Uh, there are worse uh, descriptions to have if you're a left-handed hitting first baseman. Lowe, as, as many people know, used to be on the Rays along with his brother, Josh. But uh, uh, Nathaniel was traded to the Rangers before the 2020, 
I guess before the, 20, before the 2021 season, in that offseason before the 2021 season, he'd had a little bit of time with the Rays, so much so that Mike, I will give you tip of the cap, had put Nathaniel on his deep sleepers column prior to the 2020 season, um, back back when he was still called Nate Lowe, or, or still called himself Nate Lowe. He now goes by Nathaniel. Of course, he didn't, um, <clears throat> excuse me, he barely played in the 2020 pandemic shortened season for the Rays, had a 109 OPS plus, so he was pretty good. The Rays thought he was expendable, and an interesting thing I noticed about him is that at the time of the trade, basically, he had a comment, I'll read you the quote, where basically he was like, yeah, the Rays only saw me as a platoon player. He said, I love facing left-handed pitchers, but that's just the system the Rays have. They like to match up. They're confident in right-handed bats against left-handed pitchers. The sample size was small because teams were able to carry enough players to fill those matchups, but I've come come up hitting lefties my whole life, and I really enjoy it. It will be nice to get that opportunity with Texas. Well, lo and behold, this year, Nathaniel Lowe is absolutely crushing left-handed pitching. He is proving the Rays wrong. OPS of 944 against lefties, a still respectable 822 against righties. And the one bad thing I'll say about Nathaniel Lowe, or bad, the one critique is that his defense is um, not so great. Negative 10 adds above average, which is the lowest among first basemen this season. Of course, I could see maybe a future at DH with the Rangers, he's under club control through 2026, so he's not going anywhere. With him and Seager and Marcus Simeon, there's the makings of a decent offense. The Rangers have other things to worry about, but he's been a nice story for them. I'm really glad you picked him because he's been on my radar, I guess, for a couple weeks since I saw Andrew's thing, but also for a couple years because, as you alluded to, I had him as this deep sleeper breakout two years ago, and I'm just going to try to eat off of that one forever. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.